Hey, Genre Junkies. I'm Sandra. And I'm Scott. And tonight is very special. Joining us to talk about his new book, The Marvelous Adventures of Gwendolyn Gray, is author B.A. Williamson. Hi, Mr. Williamson, and welcome to Genre Junkies. Well, hello, Genre Junkies. No, okay. I don't really talk like that. So... (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't actually talk like the narrator in the book. I don't particularly know where that voice comes from, but um, <laughs> inside of my head is British. I love it. So I, I have to know, how long has Gwendolyn been living inside of your head? Oh, yeah, uh, like six years, nearly to the day uh, that the book came out. Wow. She kind of sprang out fully formed. And the only real changes I've had to make to her in that time have been to um, to let her grow up a bit. Because it turns out when you work with a bunch of 12-year-olds and then you write a really authentic 12-year-old, people tend to find them uh, a bit whiny, annoying, and self-centered. And I said, like, <laughs> yeah, you want to be accurate or not? Right. Okay, so... One thing I wanted to ask you is throughout the book, uh, you make some references that we love, some subtle and not so subtle uh, (laughs) to novels and tropes of genre fiction. So what stories and authors were your greatest inspiration? Sure. And and can I just start by saying I listened to your episode and you guys, guys, there was, oh, I was in tears. It was amazing (gasps) because you just got it. Everything that I was laying down you guys were picking up and yes. that's Thank the most you. satisfying experience for an author. Like I did my first book signing recently and that was great. And people were showing up and they, you know, they're all like, Oh, can I have your signature? And it's, that's a lot of fun, but that's not what it's about. And hearing people really deep dive in and dissect the work and find everything that I've woven in there was just was fantastic and you guys were spot on except uh for one crucial point which we'll probably get to later but oh my. So, i can't wait to hear um yeah wrinkle in time you guys were dead on that one actually wasn't as conscious as you might think but mm. that was definitely a book that made a big impact on me as a kid and this whole book is as you can tell it's a blender full of all of my favorite things and all of my influences and sometimes the speed on the blender is not terribly high. So there's some chunky bits where you can still <laughs> see what went in there. Um, the Giver was another one, definitely. Nice. The whole thing was kind of like a The Giver meets a steampunk never-ending story. <laughs> I love it. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, I remember uh, getting a, a day of in-school suspension in middle school. And I read the entire never-ending story in one day in a little uh, felted cubicle. And that was quite the experience. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also, there's a lot of, uh, I loved the Phantom Tollbooth and, you know, of course, Narnia, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. Um, you were spot on with Princess Bride. <laughs> and then right when I was at that age, um, I've I really tried to capture what it feels like to be at that age. And so I tried to reach back to the things that really affected me and movies like Hook and a little more obscure, but the page master where uh, I watched those over and over again. And then, you know, more recently in my adult life, um, Dr. Who, there's tons of Dr. Who in there as well as um, Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett and uh, Catherine Valenti's Fairyland series. 
that's all I can I've got off the top of my head anyway. You are just reading down a list of our favorite books. Absolutely. And yes, Page Master. So in regards to the references that you throw in the book, there is one that I think that I caught, but I just wanted to check with you. Um, the character Wilhelm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The Wilhelm scream. The Wilhelm. I never thought that you could actually get a Wilhelm scream into a book, <laughs> and you nailed it. Oh, uh, I, I I try not to toot my own horn, but I am particularly proud of the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. That was golden. Very subtle, but na- but just it, for the people who caught it, it's very well done. There, there's a, there was another one, uh, and it's really subtle, and it's uh, Colonius Thrash, and they're walking through some caves. And he says, stop, children, what's that sound? And uh, one of the copywriters was like, why is he calling them children all of a sudden? They're like two years younger than him. And my editor, my fabulous editor, Caroline, goes, no, you can't change it. (laughs) I I can't believe I didn't catch that, but she was right not to change it. Oh, that's a good one. That's basically me in real life all the time is just throwing out whatever stream of consciousness references come to mind. Uh, which is a lot less irritating when I can write them down in a smooth, digestible format. And you don't just have to hang out with me. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the first story you can remember writing? Um, ooh, this is this is the first like big one. I think of this one as like my first real one. But I hadn't really thought through this question, but it's really revealing now that you say it, because I can <laughs> think of myself in like fifth or sixth grade, and I probably still have these notebooks somewhere where it is like all of my favorite characters meeting each other. And it's like, and then here's Luke Skywalker and Boba Fett and they're meeting Spider-Man and Venom and the Silver (laughs) Surfer comes in and just whatever, like Superman's there. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's kind of what I did. That's brilliant. (laughs) I love it. I think it's always interesting to hear what kind of stories were, were bouncing around in people's heads when they were young. Well, I didn't work in skydiving ninja pirates so (laughs) somehow right (laughs) so what is your favorite step in the writing process Ooh, my favorite step um i don't like the outlining and plotting phase because i feel like i'm just faced with problems and it's in it's very necessary um this book went through a lot of rewrites because i didn't outline it properly and i didn't have a a professional grasp of structure. And that was all part of that six years. A lot of it was learning curve. Um, first drafts are fun in their own way, but there's a lot of fighting against your tendencies to self edit. So my first drafts are are way too long because I, I try not to censor myself. And so I just throw absolutely anything I can think of in there. Um, it's probably the second draft where I'm going through and I can enjoy what I've written and I'm just making it better, but I'm not yet stressing about word count or polishing it. So I think that second draft is really where you just get to play with the world and you've got good stuff down and you're not terrified by the blank page, but you can still come up with all these, oh, and then this cool thing could also be in there too. And you make these connections and it's a lot of fun. That's really cool. So, so you basically learned as you went along in this with this book absolutely um i dabbled a little i'd written like a two issues of a comic series and a friend of mine drew one of them for me and it was just a fun little side project and um i wrote 
just because I was bored, uh, a play based on Jonathan Colton's music. <laughs> like Mama Mia, but for Jonathan Colton. And it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that gave me just enough practice that when the idea to write a book entered my head, I didn't immediately reject it because I'd already just had the basic experience of sitting down at a computer for hours over the course of days and actually producing. So, yeah. That's awesome. We love Jonathan Colton too, of course. Yeah. It's, and it's kind of like, um, like a D and D game where, you know, you, you do your writing and then you come up against an obstacle that you don't know how to get past. And so then you have to go learn and research or go to conferences and level up your skills. <laughs> and then you have to take your skills back to try and get through that obstacle. And then just repeat. You're making total sense to us. <laughs> I appreciate how how secretly or not so secretly nerdy you are. Yes, not so secretly. <laughs> <laughs> there was the Kafka reference. Yes. And I will say I definitely those the narrator is is it's almost a crutch, but not really, because then I can do things like well, let me just explain to you really quickly why this child can deal with huge earth shattering concepts like the concept of parallel realities. Uh, but we need to deal with this quickly because we have to get on with the chapter and then we'll just wrap it up in a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely appreciated how you shone a light on just how adaptable young kids can be. Is that something that you've observed yourself? It really is. Um there just, there just comes a point in the year where, you know, weirds, they get used to my weirdness. And I also, I'm a theater director after school. And so my regular students will see me walking through the hall with like a golf bag full of axes and a pogo stick. <laughs> and by this point in the year, it's February. And they're just like, yep, same old thing. They know so little about the world that learning one more new thing is just like, that's their everyday. They're always learning new things about the world. So a lot of they just can kind of accept what they're handed, whereas grownups have more concrete beliefs about how they think things work. Yeah, no, that was super cool. That was something I really appreciated. I love well-written young people characters that are just super lovable, like um, like our girl Gwendolyn here. So in your acknowledgments, you thank the hashtag 5am Writers Club. Can you talk a little bit more about that community? They're great. Um, there's not like a ton of interaction between us because we spend most of it actually writing and we try not to spend it all on Twitter, <laughs> but it gives a feeling of community and accountability. And you just sort of, you pull up Twitter and you use the hashtag 5am writers club and you say, I'm here and you make some joke about coffee and you post a GIF and then <laughs> you get five or six likes and you read everyone else's and you know, you're not the only one crazy enough to wake up that early and there's other people out there working with you. You know, if you're around enough, people are no will notice when you're not there. And that that gives you a reason to kind of get out of bed and make that first cup of coffee. That's really sweet. That's really neat. Is there any other um, social media groups or, or clubs that you're a member of that helped you through the writing process? Yes, um, I've, I'm in one called the, uh, the Pit Crew. Um, we are a group of people we did... Um, the pitch crit contest a while back and like we were just all contestants together and we all started talking to each other on Twitter and eventually we formed uh, a Facebook group, which has just become our kind of closed writers group uh, where we can, you know, complain to our heart's content and 
find beta readers and things like that. And that's about 10 to 12 people. And we'll do some video chats from time to time. You, you have to have people to talk to about your ideas or you'll go nuts, or at least I will. I, I have to share this stuff. That makes a lot of sense. That's cool that you found some some like-minded uh, peeps out there. Yeah, they're, they're a pretty cool group. It also helps that one of them lives in Malaysia. So when I'm up at 5 a.m., it's 5 p.m. for her. <laughs> so she's always ready for about a brainstorming. So I, I've got kind of a, another revealing question for you. Um, I think everyone has a book that they wish that they could have been the one to write. What book that exists do you wish didn't so that you could have been the one to write it? Oh, and when I say it, it'll I'll feel bad because I don't want it to not exist. Um, but it was I found it after I'd started writing Gwendolyn Gray. And I was like, this is exactly what I want it to sound like. Um, and it's, I think I already mentioned it. It's the girl who circumnavigated fairyland in a ship of her own making. And as soon as I read that title, I was like, that is the kind of like fairy tale over the top narratory thing that I want to be doing. So I put off reading it. I didn't read it until I was done with my first draft because I didn't want to be contaminated by anything too similar. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I did read it, I was like, okay, this is, this is, first of all, I am not like weird enough to have written this in the best way. Uh, <laughs> it's so original. And it helped me see it's different than me and my own work. And it's, it's hard to hear your own voice and style. Um, but I was, by seeing other things that were similar to mine or that I thought I wanted, I was able to kind of find my own voice by the contrast. So it, that was it was that was helpful. And it's one of the best series I've read in the last decade. Ooh, that's really cool, because I am not familiar with that. And that makes me want to pick it up. Yeah. And um, just for completely shameless plugs, uh, she has a new one out called Space Opera and it's for adults. And it's basically Eurovision uh, in space by way of Douglas Adams. Oh, I love it. That is actually on um, our Amazon list to get. I did not know. Oh, my God. That's fantastic then. Yes, that's her. So he is amazing. Well, our TBR just grows and grows. It does. So to say that we had an emotional reaction to the ending would be <laughs> an understatement. Um, without spoiling anything for anyone who hasn't read it, did you always plan to end the story that way? Yes. Things I want to tell you about it that we'll have to wait if there's if we do like a spoiler only section. Um, Sounds good. Did you listen to? Did you read it with the soundtrack? No, I discovered the soundtrack after we had read the book, and we we try just kind of like you try to stay you stay clean and not read other books, and and we kind of tr do the same thing when we review books. We avoid any kind of reviews we avoid the websites i usually even avoid the dust jacket so that was really cool and it makes me want to reread the book by the way oh absolutely yeah well when when you get to the ending the soundtrack makes it so much worse oh my poor students when i read it aloud to them and i'm playing the music they're so embarrassed when i can actually make them cry in class <laughs> oh. yeah but that was that was very much the intended ending um all the way from the beginning of the book where you very get that very first glimpse of those of Sparrow and Starling. Perfect. So what are your plans for the future? Uh, can we look forward to seeing any more of Gwendolyn? 
Oh, absolutely. And Yay. that's, I was, I was like screaming at my phone. I was, I was listening and you were like, oh, there's so many like stories out there that I'm not going to get to hear now. And I'm like, no, you're going to get to hear them. I'm writing them. <laughs> oh, yes. Yay. Oh, that's, that's very exciting. I'm very excited to hear that. Yes, I am. Um, I'm currently in the cutting phase of book two. Um, it's about 115,000 words and I need it to be under 100,000 if I'm not going to be insane. But it's very much the second half of this story. And I have, I have all sorts of crazy ideas that could just go and go and go. But at least book one and book two are very much um, an act one and act two sort of story. Cool. And yes, and yes, you will get to see Sparrow and Starling again. Yay! Oh, yay! Yeah, so I'm really excited. Um, and at the end of the day, the whole thing, book one and two and however many I, I end up writing, um, <laughs> not that I'm ahead <laughs> of myself at all. <laughs> It's just, it's about this girl who jumps from world to world and has adventures the same way we do when we read books. And so as long as I can think of like cool places for her to visit and cool things for her to do, um, I'll have plenty of stuff to go on. So um, the only only real teaser I'll give you um, about what might be coming uh, is fairies. (gasps) My God, it's one of my favorite words. I'm in. Sign me up. So, and... So the whole beginning of this story was that it, I wanted something to read aloud at bedtime. And that's where this whole, the whole tone of it came from is I wanted that very classical guy sitting down at the fire in his smoking jacket to open the big leather bound book and tell you a story. Um, the sort of book you'd see open up at the beginning of a Disney movie. Oh, think, with yeah. all the stained glass paintings and all that. I right. know you're laying down. Yeah, so and I just sort of poured all of myself into it um, that I could. And the the struggle I'm having and I had and continue to have is how to balance the sad with the fun. Mm. Um, and I'd like to say that that's some sort of deep commentary on what it's like to grow up and become an adult and go through these things is that it can be a lot of fun, but it's also a little bit sad. Mm-hmm. But I can't really say that that's intentional. Uh, <laughs> that's just kind of the way I roll. And it's just, it's so much fun to play with readers' emotions. Yes. Yes. And we love it, obviously. So, yeah. And so you guys made some comments about the middle grade label in the last podcast. And I have to agree with you that this is, this one was hard to put into a box. And it's definitely a marketing box. And it's middle grade by dint of the fact that there's no like sexual content or real gore or explicit violence, but it's like, there's even a subcategory called upper middle grade, which it fits into even more neatly because, you know, there's those beginnings of romance and it's just, it's all kind of muddy because you need these subcategories, but then people aren't familiar with them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's better to just, yeah, say what it's about and how good it is. And I will say um, the the romance aspect is very polarizing among adult readers. I've noticced that on uh, That's on shocking Goodreads. to it's, me. Some people have really taken umbrage with that in a middle reader book. Yeah, the a lot of the on the the criticism side tends to be it's like I don't want to see a twelve year old having a romance and falling in love. I was like, that may be true, but you know who does want to see that is 12 year olds. (laughs) (laughs) I know I did. 
Yeah, I showed my students some of those some of those comments and reviews. I was like, "What do you guys think?" And they they yelled at me. They were like, "You cannot take this out of there." And I think it's because as a, a lot of the adult readers they're reading down and they're picturing a child, or maybe they have children. And they're picturing their children, and that's just that's gross. Um, but <laughs> if you're remembering what it was like to be that child, or if you are a child. I mean, that's what they're thinking about. Um, and I really wanted to try and get that that very visceral first crush feeling where it's all fluttery and there's like a little bit of obsession to it, except in a situation where the other person feels it back. Um, mm-hmm. And so in that first crush, you usually have this very idealized or idealized version of the person um, that you picture in your head. And this, it just... I that worked really well in this particular um, circumstance. And in the end, it ends the way those kind of always end. And so I wanted both the end, both of the ends of that emotional spectrum um, for that kind of first puppy love crush feeling. And I wanted to really just deliver the feeling of being 12 and looking across the classroom at that, person who'll never look back at you and you just you can't stop thinking about I'm so glad you kept it I think it's it's so sweet it's not icky at all yeah people people are crazy I think people forget what it was like to be 12 yes you're not a baby you know like you feeling things yeah uh the the bra snapping incident at school is another one that not not many people but I did have one reviewer say that they stopped there like i am done like they they're (laughs) this is not a book for children i don't know who (laughs) let this across and i was just i didn't know we sent review copies to the town from footloose so (laughs) that part um scott and i actually talked about this it's like oh my god even younger than that so many children snapping one another's bra straps that is life that is real life (laughs) that happens so I got to feel proud of myself for being like the edgy, controversial children's book writer. Right. Well, and I think that that plays to your favor, quite honestly. I mean, obviously, I think adults would love this book. But when it comes to middle readers, 12 year olds, 11 year olds, I think that little bit of edginess kind of is exciting. Yeah. And as the books go on, uh, my plan is that as she gets older, the books grow older with her. Mm. Um, not unlike Harry Potter, though it's incredibly gauche to try to compare myself <laughs> to that. <laughs> I-, I believe I did it first, so it's okay. <laughs> oh, and I-, I nearly fell over when you did. Um, <laughs> but they're, just, they're so well done that they're, they're there for you to like reach to as an example and a model. So... Um, yeah, and it makes sense, I guess, too. I guess to go any further down that line, we need to invoke a spoiler warning. Well, I agree. All right, people, consider yourself warned. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at JohnRajunkies. And don't forget to visit the website, JohnRajunkies.com. So you've been warned. Spoilers beyond. All right. So that ending. Well, yeah, like as I was saying, um, she very literally gets to have this idealized version of a person come to life. And if you're a 12 year old girl that gets 
an imaginary boy to come to life, you're going to tell me they're not going to fall in love with each other. Right. I would. But I will I will I will spare you some of the of the hurt and the pain. And I was I was smiling wickedly to myself as you guys said that I was like, oh, they docked me a badger tea party because I hurt them. I am very fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of figured you would be. So, yeah, well, we'll keep that extra tea party in reserve. One of the common misconceptions I'm seeing out there in reviews and commentary is people that kind of get to the end and they're disappointed that it was all in her imagination. And it's not. And I don't know if I, so I've, I've definitely played this up more um, as I've kept writing to try and make it even extra clear, but also make it more of a, a theme. But um, talk is a real place. It is like, they really went to that world. All of the things that happened to her actually happened. There's no, there's no backseas. There's no, it was all a dream. <laughs> um, Missy really grew bunny ears and Aww. Crimony really shows up in her bedroom. <sighs> and talk is as a parallel world as equally real as hers. But it's, it is this whole idea of, are they going to a world that's inside of this book? Or is this just a book about that world that's somehow been carried over? And I don't really answer that question, but that's, it's definitely a theme there um, later on about what different characters believe. But all those adventures are real. Like she didn't create talk or Colonius Thrash or any of that. Um, she did create Sparrow and Starling. Um, Sparrow, Starling, Crimony, and Missy's Rabbit Ears. Those are her only original creations. Everything that's in talk was someone else's or it was already there. So that, those were all real adventures she's been on. And those people are all still really out there. And just because Sparrow and Starling started out as imaginary, they're not anymore. So they can't come back into her world because she can't bridge that gap. But they're still out there on their own now doing their own thing. I love it. Oh, I mean, upon a little bit more thought, I did think that, you know, the collector and all of that was a lot for her to create out of the blue. We were very raw when we first recorded the episode. I'm really happy to hear, though, that that it's all real. Me too. Yeah, I definitely didn't want it to be like a kind of a cheap cop out of just, you know, it's all in her head the whole time because I hate that. And, you know, that's probably the one thing I would change if I could go back and do some more edits is um, that I would I would emphasize that a little more strongly at the end. I think I have her waking up and she's still wearing the dress and she says, you know, it's not it wasn't a dream after all. Right. And I think there's a couple little lines like that, but I should have hit, I could have hit that more strongly. Um, And I would also add at some point having father tell her a little less noise there, a little less noise. Cause I really wanted that. (laughs) I didn't think of it in time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's always next time. We'll wait. (laughs) Right. I mean, if I can say, I feel that the ending was treated very well even now knowing that everything is real, it was very powerful and emotional and and made you, well, you were scared throughout the entire book for everybody. It almost made you feel even stronger for her and for everybody. So I I wouldn't regret what you did with it. 
Yeah, and I definitely don't regret anything I did at all. I don't know, maybe a sentence here or there I would add in, but oh, where they're just, they're under the tree and there's just the golden sunlight coming down and they're having this heartbreaking conversation. And there's, I just reread that scene and I don't know where any of that came from. I was like, I don't know who wrote this, but <laughs> I, I can barely read it back without blurring the page. So I had a question about that scene and that setting specifically, because it was a it was a large field surrounded far away by a line of trees. Was that sort of like the city, but empty? Was that what you were going for? Oh, that's interesting. But no, it's um, it's the forest she imagines back in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, she's that's kind of her, I guess, imaginary home. It's just this place that she's kind of she daydreams in. And so it's familiar to her. So it's kind of like her subconscious um, imaginary baseline. It's just, that's her happy place. Well, there goes one of my theories then. <laughs> I was, I was picturing the trees as being kind of an idea of the wall. Oh, hmm. Now, see, you have to be careful with this because, you know, I don't have the end of the series fully fleshed out. So you never know what I might. Steal. <laughs> that's true. I'm just planting little seeds then. <laughs> Is there anything else that you felt that we just got wrong or we missed? Like, oh, everything you were talking about from the authorial style and the the author is really this this other character. And it's I don't know, it just makes it easier somehow to put up this other voice. And then if I'm out doing like, you know, I did a, a television interview and it was so much easier to just put on like my fancy vest and sort of pretend to be B.A. Williamson. (laughs) And then have that sort of separation. I don't have to be myself. I can pretend to be this author uh, when I have to be on. Um, That was great. And all the the stuff about the spirituality of it all, um, that was very much accurate. And it's this, there's so many themes about creation versus consumption and Mm -hmm. the way we use technology and all of that. And, there's, you know, about sharing ideas and this the shared power of imagination and belief that there's kind of this this pool of it that's out there. Um, it's kind of the opposite of American gods, where like the more people that believe in someone, the stronger they are. Well, in this case, the the fewer people who are drawing on this imagination power, the more power she has. The, at the end of it, it's about how ideas have the power to change things and to change the world. That's how anything ever gets changed is if somebody has an idea and usually it's because they write it down somewhere and someone else gets to read it. So it's everything from ideas to inventions to books and just how do you change a world? And with Gwendolyn, ideas having the power to change things just becomes a lot more literal, what have you. Um, As far as, like, so the dystopian aspect of it, I'm up against this real hard wall of, well, how do you actually change the world? Right. Uh, not with like any sort of a magic hand wave. Like how, if you had a, how do you change a society? And it's like, oh boy, that's not an easy question to answer. Um, I had a little easier of a time of it on the flip side of the question of how do you get to a society like Gwendolyn's in the first place, mm-hmm. which I haven't fully explained yet, but the Lambents are a lot to do with it, obviously. And they make it a lot more believable. I think that I always wonder why there's no one like questioning these societies and 
Why isn't anyone like wondering, well, why do we do it this way? Or how did it get this way? And so the Lambents just can kind of neatly take care of that, just a little dose of mind control. But sometimes I read other dystopian works and I like the world that they've built, but I don't understand how anyone ever set that up to begin with. Like who decided maybe we should all just be divided into four different colors and that'll fix everything. And it's like, (laughs) who thought this was like, I like that we're playing in this world now, but I have no idea what kind of what you did to get them here. Absolutely. That is such a good point. So you read ones like The Giver Mm -hmm. that I think are really feel really grounded and plausible. And so I wanted one that felt really plausible, uh, even if in the end it's Mr. Banks from Mary Poppins wrapped up in mid-century modern America fashions and styles. (laughs) I, I have such a strong visualization now. Right. Now you can picture father at his typewriter and them riding the monorail. It's it's Edwardian England meets 1950s America. That's <laughs> it. That's actually that's totally it. And I, I love that because that's different than a lot of other things I've read. Your visuals that you painted for us were not like I feel like I'm in the giver. I feel like I'm in Red Rising or The Hunger Games or. Right. We should probably wrap it up pretty quickly, but uh, I, I guess I just I want to try and get something out of you in regards to <laughs> the dystopian society. Was this created by one person or was this just kind of grown to be this point? Hmm. Um, the short term, medium term answer is grown that way. Um but I'll also I'll let slip that it was influenced or steered, but in the end it came about uh, democratically. This was Ooh. this was a, a chosen thing that the citizens went in on. Interesting. I'll accept that answer. And then I guess for my final comment, the only thing that I think you guys may have missed is I don't feel like Tylerium Drek has been getting enough love out there. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I I do love a good villain, and I did like him. But I mean, I just love Colonius more. That's all. And I think it's more the writer part of me that I just love writing him so much. Anytime he's there on the page, his dialogue just just shows up on the page. I have no idea where all those words come from, but he just is. He needs a mustache so he can twirl it, but. Um, <laughs> As, as a reader, he's not my favorite character, but he's probably my favorite to write. He's just so evil. At least in in your first book, there's just no goodness in him at all. He kept this beloved character as a slave, for God's sake. I know, and he shows up again. <gasps> and, um, oh, I have, I have to, like, I wanted to play with talk a little more and Colonius. And there's other things going on, too. But he comes back, and he's still just as unrepentantly, gleefully evil. He just thoroughly enjoys it and he <laughs> just enjoys playing with everyone because he's confident that he is smarter than everyone and he usually is and it's just it's it's too much fun yeah is you know chaotic evil <laughs> and, and a damn fine dresser yeah <laughs> all right well thank you again mr williamson for taking time for us um it really was our pleasure 
Uh, and before you go, where can our listeners find you, like on social media? I'm at BA Writes pretty much everywhere. Um, and then GwendolynGray.com has any and all information that they might need or want. But Twitter is where I'm most active. And there's the Gwendolyn Gray Facebook page if you look for it. But in the end, Goodreads and Amazon reviews are what help the most. Yeah, so please go out and get The Marvelous Adventures of Gwendolyn Gray. We absolutely recommend it on Genre Junkies and leave those reviews. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. This was a blast. Oh, thank, oh, thank you thank for you. making time. It, it was absolutely our pleasure. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, everybody. So have a good evening. And as always, we ask you to keep reading past your bedtimes. Mm-hmm.